You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Ben, uh, you brought candy today, so uh, you've earned your way back into my good graces. Your friend and mine, Ben e- Folks. Easter candy, no less. Yeah, we're on. It's full on holiday spirit. That's right. Here from the uh, co-main event podcast. And you know, I thought I was really gonna put you in a in a spot here by letting you choose between the Reese's peanut butter egg and the Twix egg. Yeah, and it was a no brainer for you. Oh no, yeah, Reese's peanut butter all the way. I'm in not fact, an amateur. I'm a professional <laughs> over here. In fact, I feel like you cast a little disdainful look at my Twix egg. Oh, no, not at all. Twix egg is solid, but I mean, anytime Reese's peanut butter is available, guy's got to jump on that if he knows his way around the candy scene. <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll take your word for it that you do. I mean, as long as there's no Turkish delight available and there's no... So uh, as long as we're in America, basically. Yeah, as long as there's no candy egg that's like uh, milk chocolate on the outside and white chocolate on the inside that has a tiny uh, Venom Spider-Man toy inside, like the one we got sent from... <laughs> right. Uh, from, I believe, Grant uh, Gelinas Brown sent us those. The, what did you get in your egg? Did you ever eat it, by the way? Uh, yeah, I can't remember what it was, but my daughter seized it immediately, and I had to take it away because it was a choking hazard. Yeah, uh, we keep ours up on the shelf. One, th- one thing that this, this whole experience of having uh, CME listeners send us their regional candies has taught me is that, uh, you know, America might be the greatest country in the history of the universe, but we get our asses kicked on the candy scene. Yeah, Canada I, kicks our ass. In America, I don't even think you can go to the store and pick yourself up a weird chocolate-covered, uh, like, strawberry gelatin bar like you can up in Canada. No. It's bullshit, what are those called? Man. Big Turk? Is that what that was called? Well, there is a candy bar Which called Big Turk. Which is like Big a chocolate-covered gelatin stick. That's basically the idea behind Turkish Delight. Also, still gross. Even when you just describe it, still gross. Well, Ben, we have some listener-submitted music this week. It's been a while for us, but oh uh, we got a couple new songs from longtime listener Kyle Kelly Yoner and his band The Split Screens, uh, which they've been on the show before, but they've got some new stuff out this week. So uh, if you like what you hear from them out there in internet radio land, you can find them at splitscreensmusic.com. And as always, we'll put a link to that on the website. Once this episode gets published, can I be the asshole every time the new stuff plays? Just yells, "Play your old stuff!" <laughs> yeah, everyone enjoys that. Okay, every, every somebody musical artist enjoys that. <laughs> right. Well, three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Roy Nelson took care of business against Roderick Nog last Friday in the UAE, then jumped on the mic to say, I don't know, he wants like a title shot or whatever. You know, if it's cool with you guys, I don't really care. And in round number two, Michael Bisping returns from a year-long layoff from a serious eye injury this week. But from the video I saw of him today getting into Tim Kennedy's personal space and pointing his finger in his face, yep, seems like the same old lovable Michael Bisping. And in round number three, Travis Brown and Fabricio Verdum will square off for the heavyweight number one contender status on Saturday night. We'd say it seems like a classic striker versus grappler matchup, but that would make Travis Brown really, really mad. Too much cock, that guy. Much cock guy. What? You know, Fabrizio Verdun's greatest soundbite ever? No. Oh, too much cock, Chad Dundas. What? He said that about Travis Brown? No, he said that about Alistair Overeem. Oh. Where the hell were you? I guess not paying attention to that. Much cock guy. Too much cock. Wow. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? And just saying stuff. I feel like we already had our first, are you fucking kidding me of the week? (laughs) Uh, But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jeremy Talley. He writes, As someone who thought the case for Gina Carano getting an immediate title shot upon her hypothetical return to fighting was criminally thin, I have to admit that learning about Alexis Davis getting the nod, despite earning her way there with a, with a win streak over UFC caliber competition, left me feeling a little deflated. As journalists and fans, did you feel the same jolt of disappointment at the sudden loss of a quote-unquote big fight? If so, how do we balance our love for entertainment with our desire for a purely competitive narrative when it comes to title contention? Now, I did, I have to admit, 
Uh, when the news came out that Ronda Rousey's next going to fight Alexis Davis, I did feel a twinge of disappointment, like deep yeah. in my heart. But it certainly wasn't disappointment over the loss of a potential Gina Carano fight. I felt no. elation over that. Right. In fact, I felt like we had dodged the Carano bullet. Uh, at least for a few months. We can all set our Gina Carano doomsday clocks back like another right. six months. But I think Jeremy Tolley here makes a very valid point and it kind of sums up what the feeling was. It was almost as if the UFC was saying, oh, yeah, you fuckers, you want to be jerks about uh, Gina Carano? Here, here's what you claim to want. Alexis Davis. Yeah. Well, Three fight it, win streak in the al- UFC. It almost felt like the whole Carano thing got floated just so when they announced Alexis Davis, we would all be like, yay, all right, Alexis <laughs> Davis. Awesome. Um, good for you. Another thing is, though, I think some of the disappointment came from the method by which it was announced, because they announced it just pretty much by via Dana White tweet on like Friday afternoon uh, that just pops up on your timeline. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, OK, well, question answered. And if it was a bigger deal, they like call up a uh, conference call about right. it, you know, right. so uh I think that had something to do with maybe a little bit of the underwhelming feeling, although, like you said, well, I don't think she's going to win. Alexis Davis seems like the challenger we can all agree on. Well, okay. in-house anyway. Well, I think the one thing that I thought of when they announced Alexis Davis was what, what if, if not her, who? Who would we want? Right. Well, and I guess the only other alternative would be Kat Zingano, but she's not going to be ready until, right. you know, late summer. Uh, so. I mean, if that's the issue, that if it's a it's a timing thing, then and nobody else can go right now. I mean, Alexis Davis has the the creds that you can't really poke a hole in. I mean, you you look at her and she's got the three fight win streak in the UFC. The first one's against Rosie Sexton, who's not really a bantamweight, so fine, take that one away. Um, still got a a win over Liz Carmouche, that win over Jessica I. I mean, she. You know, you can't say that she doesn't deserve a title shot, you know, especially considering where the women's division is at right now. Yeah. And I think that's an important too, important point too, uh, where the women's division is at right now, because the booking of Ronda Rousey against Alexis Davis certainly reinforces the idea that this 135 pound division is Ronda Rousey and everybody else. Right. Especially when the UFC is sort of, uh, outwardly turning its back on people like, uh, Cyborg Justino and especially Holly Holm who you'd think would be a no-brainer to bring into the division. Uh, just up to this point, at least, haven't been able to get together on a figure uh, with her manager to to make that work. And uh, if the reports that we've heard about uh, how much money she was offered by the UFC as compared to how much money she could maybe make just by going to have a boxing fight, uh, uh, how they relate, doesn't seem like she'll be in the octagon anytime soon. No. Well, you, you've got to think, though, that the UFC is going to have to come back to the table here because right. like you said I mean if you look at the other options around what what else have you got and i think the thing is with Alexis Davis where on paper you know yeah you can't argue against her as having earned a title shot compared to what everybody else has done in the UFC and what she's done at the same time you you watch that last fight with Jessica I there's nothing there to suggest that she is a competitive fight for Ronda Rousey which right. is the case with most of the women in the UFC right now yeah especially skill set wise i feel exactly, like it doesn't yeah. seem like uh Alexis Davis uh is going to be able to stop the takedowns. Like that's the thing that I think kind of undermines my ex- excitement about that fight is that it just doesn't seem like she's the, has the skill set or the athleticism to be able to stop the judo throws, which is as everybody knows is the only thing you pretty much, or not the only thing, but like should be priority number one when you fight Ronda Rousey. I just see uh, when I, when I play it out in my mind brain, which as you know, is, is fairly reliable. Yeah. Uh, that's at least, it's like 45%. I just see you're getting thrown and, and then you go first round arm bar from there. Right. Well, and I wonder though, if maybe this is the, the transitional moment we need, not only to get to, you know, Kat Zingano coming back or Holly Holm getting signed or one of those things happening, but also, for maybe the UFC needs to realize, look, it's not enough just to put Ronda Rousey's face on the poster and uh, next step profit. Right. Like that, it does matter who she fights, uh, especially once people realize, okay, she's the dominant force. You got to bring somebody in there who seems like a legitimate challenger and who really has a, a skill set to push her. Um, otherwise, people aren't going to buy this stuff. They'll just read about it on the internet and wait for the gifts to pop up. Yeah. Uh, and what about the Gina Carano thing? Do you think we're out of the Gina Carano woods? Because I don't feel like we are. I feel no. like even with the signing of this Alexis Davis fight, it almost made me feel like, 
okay, we're going to go ahead and float this Gina Carano thing out there to just go ahead and get the initial wave of outrage over with. And then, so then when you come back around yeah, with it, end of the year, New yeah. Year's Eve show, when you get serious and you start talking about it, it's almost like the kids at home have been warned to expect it. You know, in order of like most serious barriers to least serious barriers from keeping that happening, I think the number one is Gina Carano either not really willing to be to, to come back. Um, that she was just floating it because she's got a movie out there to promote. And, you know, if you got to go on Arsenio Hall, that's the thing you got to say if you're Gina Carano to get right. people talking about you. Um, or either her not wanting to come back or her not wanting to come back for whatever the UFC, whatever kind of money the UFC is going to offer her. Um, cause I imagine she would want a fairly substantial paycheck. And there's got to be a point when you're shelling out so much money to make it that it's not the big profitable fight anymore. Um, I think the, the least serious one is our outrage. Like, oh, I think yeah, that the absolutely. UFC cares the least about that. They they still think that they can just make whatever fights they want and shove it down our throats. Uh, maybe the best thing to happen to MMA at this point is that Steven Soderbergh gets on a horn and calls Gina Carano and says he wants to put her in Taken 22, Electric Boogaloo, uh, <laughs> come Christmas time. Yeah, no, she that... and Liam Neeson running around Bavaria. She should be Bohemia. so lucky as to have a co-star like Mr. Liam Neeson. Sir Liam Neeson. I, next, I just made that up. I don't next know question. Actually, sir. Yeah. I probably is. Next question comes to us from Santos Mendez. He writes, a fighter falls off his stool in RFA and the incompetent doctor does nothing. His corner? They try as hard as they can to get him back in the fight. I'm fucking speechless. Discuss. (laughs) This one, I mean, I know you have seen the gif by now. I've seen the gif. Of the dude keeling over off the stool. And I hate to laugh because it is a serious moment and a really serious, like, breach of just protocol on on a lot of people's parts but the way the dude face plants just boom face first land there like a chalk outline of a murdered person on law and order and his corner's response is to kind of go over there and like pat him like kind of pat him on on the on the shoulder like hey come on buddy come on get up let's let's get serious come on like (laughs) it's not like holy shit our fighter just went face down in in between rounds it's not serious concern it's just like hey come on man Come on, get back up. Yeah, and then later he was like, I was just dizzy. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, that's dude. It's just no, dizzy. No, you weren't dizzy. Is not normal. Is <laughs> normal, normal, Chad. Where did that go, Dad? Was that in Wyoming? Is Wyoming. That what I read about? And you know Montana's going to end up getting blamed for some shit like that. Oh, Didn't yeah, take long. We're basically the same state. Didn't take long for people just like, oh, it's you guys are all crazy out there. You don't know what the hell you're doing. Yeah, well, I mean, that is, in terms of uh, regulating our sporting events, Pretty close to the truth. I mean, yeah. I have no idea what's going on with the Wyoming Athletic Commission. I can say, well, here's one all thing. I can say is that we don't really even have. Yeah, one. I was just like say. The, the guys who promote fights in Montana essentially made one up so that they would have one. Right, and it's just like the Montana Fight Federation thing. It's not like a state athletic commission uh, like that. So at least, I mean, Wyoming does have that over us. Um, but yeah, that seemed like something where I don't know how nobody recognizes that that's a bad idea. Not a good sign when a dude just keels over off the stool. Yeah, where's your referee at, man? What's he doing? Where's your doctor? Where's your your the the guy's coaches? That's the thing that seems like okay, you look over there, you see your fighter has face planted and he is not moving, and your response is just like, Oh, come on, brother. Like like he's your drunk friend and like, oh come on, you gotta get up off the sidewalk, man. The cops are gonna come around here and it's gonna be a big mess. Like, come on. You, you don't care any more about the guy than that? You're not a little bit concerned about that? Somewhere in a federal prison in Oregon, Josh Rosenthal was probably just disgusted. <laughs> he probably had all the guys in the, in the day room fired up to, to turn the TV away from Judge Judy and over to Access. They have satellite TV over at the federal prison. They're not there. savages. Yeah. All right. Well, the next question comes to us this week from David Golden. He writes, this weekend, Vladimir Matyushenko fought his last fight. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a little sad to see him go. He was one of those fighters who always surprised me. I never knew if he was going to submit a guy or get knocked out or go the distance. Uh, but it seemed like no matter what, he always brought it. He's one of my all-time favorite fighters, and I hope people remember him as fondly as I do. You guys have any mem- memories of the janitor you can share? I'm all ears. Vladimir Matyushenko, by the way. Uh, not only talented fighter, but, uh, all around good guy. I think he's generally regarded as, yes, and, yes, he uh, 
you know, this might be old news. I don't know if, if people who are listening to the podcast know this or not, but Vladimir Matushenko, like one of the better personal stories in mixed martial arts, because uh, when he was on, I believe, the Belo, Belarusian uh, wrestling team back in the uh, would have probably been late 80s, early 90s, early 90s, uh, he just defected uh, when when the team was in New York for a wrestling meet, he just basically like walked away from the hotel where they were all staying. Uh, I assume as I imagine it, like into downtown Manhattan with no, with, without knowing like barely a word of English and then, uh, goes on to, to fashion, I guess maybe to fashion the only life for himself that a tough ass wrestler who didn't speak the language could possibly fashion. And that is being <laughs> a, uh, uh, a close to an A-list mixed martial arts fighter. Well, you know, and, uh, as far as, the the what we'll think about him now that he's gone i mean one thing he's 43 so he had a pretty good run in there in the sport and you know was started out at that point when it was unclear whether mixed martial arts was ever even going to become a thing that you could do for a living uh and then just like saw that it maybe it was and so tried to make kind of a late career resurgence uh was with the ifl uh was where i first got to know him uh, back when i worked for the ifl uh, and as far as interesting personal stories about Vladimir Matyushenko, it was pretty well known uh, during the IFL days among the the IFL people and among his you know quote unquote team uh, that he was on that uh, Vladdy didn't really train very much like that he was mostly just rolling in there and doing that. To well, people. yeah, man, if you're a forty year old Belarusian wrestler who defected like you're not training for that shit like whatever man just go in there and, and slug it out with what you got <laughs> he didn't lose a single fight in the ifl and it was one of those things where people would say that sometimes although they'll be like well you know like Vladdy, he doesn't really train and i'd always be like what do you mean like what do you mean he doesn't really like what are you saying like he doesn't like you know he doesn't flip over the big tire like he doesn't do that or like he you know because he must do something <laughs> like he's not just like sitting he's on the couch and be like oh room. is that fight tomorrow oh man all right all right, where's my shorts? Uh, you know, he must do something, but they're just like, you know, you'd be surprised at how little he trains. And I understood that then he kind of changed that as, you know, maybe as he got older, he had to train a little bit more than he did beforehand. But people would insist that, yeah, was kind of just rolling in there and beating dudes up. Uh, two other awesome things about Vladimir Matyushenko before we move on. The first that he got his nickname from Mark Coleman. Uh, when Coleman and I think Team USA were over I there. I it was Mark Schultz or Dave Schultz. I think it was Coleman that they went okay. over there and, and uh, he whipped a bunch of dudes' asses in a wrestling meet. And then after it was over, uh, Matyushenko was out uh, uh, like cleaning off the mats, mopping off the mats after the, after the meet was over. And, and the American wrestler named Mark, who apparently we don't know the true identity of, uh, started berating his team was like, look, you guys got your ass kicked by the goddamn janitor. <laughs> and the other th cool thing about awesome nickname. Vladimir Matushenko, uh, when you would go to the UFC, he was just a dude who was always around, yeah. just like constantly present, just like omnipresent in his awesome white Kangol and Hawaiian shirt. I always would, always with that Kangol. He's, I mean, who's that sitting there, uh, in the bar at the Tropicana drinking a Heineken, uh, wearing a Kangol like he's Samuel L. Jackson. That's Vladimir Matyushenko. Yeah, you would know Vladimir Matyushenko from like 150 yards away because you right. would see the hat and the shirt and you'd be like, oh, there's the janitor. I'm glad he's in the house. The last question this week comes to us from Peter Kwasnick. He writes, I've been thinking about those gruesome shin fractures that seem to be happening more and more, as well as what causes them. Hard, low kick checks. Uh, but I thought we were going to go low check kick there. Like James, James Tony, Tony style. Yeah. Uh, Corey Hill revealed that he has permanent neurologic deficits after he had fractured his shin in a fight a few years back. Anderson Silva's recovery, although well-documented on social media to be going well, looks like it'll take longer than predicted. That's an understatement. Well-documented, <laughs> yes. Uh, seeing Tyrone Spong fall to the canvas with his shin unnaturally bent, I've had enough. I do understand that martial arts are combat sports, not chess matches, but I'm not sure if competition is worth permanent deficits. Uh, I think that we lost something in translation here. Uh, but uh, prolonged recovery or shortened careers. Do you think that hard low kick checks should join illegal elbows or soccer kicks to be banned? I think there would be no way to do that. You would have to eliminate the whole act of leg kicking to yeah. begin with before you could. Which, I mean, that's a pretty big part of the game. Yeah. Man. Like, you don't want Joe Rogan to walk away forever from this sport <laughs> because there's nobody, nobody's going to be leg kicking anymore. Yeah. You know, and that's, I mean, 
I think that was, you just got to deal with it. This is just something that happens sometimes. Uh, if you don't want that to happen, then think twice before trying to kick another man in his damn leg. I See, mean, you also might. It's, it seems to me like a thing that would almost police itself. Yeah. Right? Like, well, if, I, no if, one ever thinks it'll happen to them, I'm sure. Right. And that's because it doesn't really happen except for these two really high profile uh, uh, three leg breaks. What's that on Spong? It's three. Yeah, I guess if you're going to count Corey Hill, I mean, I mean, and then like, Jose just, Paley Landy Jones just recently. Him too. Okay, uh, this year we've had a couple of them, um, but it, it's a it's a rare thing considering you know how many leg kicks are thrown. That's true, uh, in, and nobody's getting like. N- I mean, I think that this is one of those things because it looks so gross when it happens. Yeah. Right? I didn't even watch the Tyrone Spong one. I don't even yeah. want to see it. Like, you, you I'll just imagine see- Anderson Silva's body with Tyrone Spong's head on top. Yeah. Once you've seen one, once you've seen one dude, like his leg, like from the mid shin down, become an empty sock, uh, you've pretty much seen them all. They're all equally gross. Uh, but I think that we're reacting more to that visual aspect of it, not even thinking about how much more common it is for a dude to smash his hand all to shit trying to punch another dude in the head. Right. You know, or somebody like Holly Holm, like breaking her arm on a, uh, like blocking a a head kick or something. I mean, that kind of stuff happens. And I think that's just, that's going to be something you can't really take out of fighting. Uh, and I think that, like you said, it has to police itself where dudes, maybe they see it happen to a guy like Anderson Silva and think, okay, I need to really set up my leg kicks or not throw them. Yeah. And it could be a thing, uh, you know, where the sport evolves and, and in some ways is, is cyclical a lot in terms of techniques that become popular and then kind of fall out of favor. Like if you see a lot of guys start to injure themselves by throwing those low kicks, like. And maybe because it's because people are getting better at checking them. I don't know. Uh, you probably are going to see guys go to different stuff, start using different techniques. So um, I don't think you could ever make a rule against that. It just seems like too big a part of the sport. It'd be like outlawing tackling or something in football. Well, yeah, you know, and it seemed like uh, maybe something that people were talking about, too, back when it seemed like we had a, a lot of instances of guys trying to throw that like inside leg kick and it's slipping up, kicking someone in the balls, Dundasso style. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Effective technique. Yeah. <laughs> and the the same kind of conversation, like, what do you do about that? And it seemed like the answer we came to was, I guess we just live with it. Uh, we tell each other, like, let's try not to kick each other in the balls here. Let's do our best uh, as far as that goes. Uh, and then if and when it does happen, uh, the dude who is the offending party walks around with his hands up in the air like, hey, it's not my fault that the actions pause while the other dude lays there and shouts in pain. Yeah, it gets booed. Uh, well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. We will be. That's not how it goes. If you have a question, comment, or a concern for the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. There you go. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. You know, it would help us if I had that written down somewhere. No, you don't want to do just that. Just saying it. Just saying it off the top no, of my head. No, but then where would you put your coffee and your your peanut butter candy egg? Well, that's a sacrifice I'm not willing to make. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. All right, Ben. Well, I guess we can say this for Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira on Friday at the uh, UFC Fight Night show from Abu Dhabi, and that is that he came out of his corner appearing to have the right idea about what to do against Roy Nelson, Uh, and that appeared that he wanted to get in his face, pressure him, maybe keep him off balance, keep him moving backwards, uh, pump that jab in his face to keep him from unloading his murder ball right hand. Uh, and it worked for all of about 56 seconds when it turned out that, well, maybe Nogira has a bottomless heart and a weird zombie-like ability to uh, endure punishment. He didn't necessarily have the physical tools to take out Roy Nelson. Uh, and about two and a half minutes after the first time he got knocked down, he got knocked stiff in a ugly and brutal display of, of mixed martial arts 
fighting. That didn't feel good to see that, did it? No, it did not. I don't know where you want to start with this. If you want to start with if it means anything for Roy Nelson or if if it uh, seems like maybe this was the last time we should we should see Roddy Nog out there. Well, I actually want to start with what you said about how it seemed like he had the right idea. And when, you know, it's one of these things where as soon as the fight started happening and you could see how it was playing out, you're like, oh, yeah, Nogueira's going to get killed. Like, of course he is. And you think about, like, how you beat Roy Nelson, how other people have beat him. And you realize that, like, Noguera, he might have had the ability to do that at some point in his career, back when he was a little bit more fleet of foot. Uh, not that, you know, he was ever known for being uh, the, the quickest, smoothest dude. But, right. but know, he was regarded as an excellent boxer at well, one yeah. time. Well, and, I mean, generally, the level of boxing has improved since that era. But, like, you know... Maybe you know, ten years ago, Noguera could have moved around a little bit more and done kind of the the Stipe Miocic's, uh Stipe uh, approach to beating Roy Nelson. I mean, that's a that's a noted way, a well established way to beat a guy like Roy Nelson. And now you see, like, he just doesn't have that ability. He's he's not going to be hard to find in there. He's not going to take Roy Nelson down. You know, maybe the best chance he would have had there would have been to do one of those things that he sometimes does, where he gets rocked and then the other dude rushes in and then he catches, you know, a submission or something or pulls something crazy off. Uh, and Nelson's a little bit too much of a savvy veteran for something like that. So it seemed kind of inevitable. And yet I don't recall people saying, I mean, I picked Nelson in this one, but I don't recall it seeming as obvious before as it did immediately after the fight started. Like he was like, Nelson was a slight favorite. It's like minus 150 or something. And then you see them in there in the cage together and it looks like, Wow, we should have all known that this was going to happen. What the hell were we thinking? Yeah, and I think that the interesting thing about this fight is is how it, to me at least, reestablished Roy Nelson's, uh, uh, I guess, aura or position in the heavyweight division, kind of as the like ultimate gatekeeper. And I don't necessarily mean that as uh, as like an insult to Roy Nelson. Like that's, I'm sure he'll take it kindly. It's good work if you can get it. But like if you look <laughs> at the guys that that he has beaten. And the guys who have beaten him, it's like it's hard to cast Roy Nelson as anything but like a really clear line of demarcation in the heavyweight division. It's like if you can beat Roy Nelson, you're a contender. And if you can't, you're not like if you if you beat Roy Nelson, you're Daniel Cormier or Stipe Miocic or Fabricio Verdum or Frank Mir three years ago or Junior Dos Santos. And if you get beat by Frank Mir, you're Czech Congo or Matt Mitrion, you know, like beat by Roy Nelson, you mean? Yeah, get, get beat by Roy Nelson. Yeah, no. And that is, and you know, it seems like, uh, people hear the term gatekeeper and assume that it's just meant as like an insulting term. It describes a real thing, like a real phenomenon that actually happens. And it seems like if you're, especially if you're the UFC looking at Roy Nelson, what's his appeal? Well, fans like him. He gives you a pretty dependable, uh, output. You know pretty much what you're getting with a Roy Nelson fight. And especially for stuff like this, you can slap him on the main event for this fight pass thing on a Friday afternoon. And it feels like a main event because, hey, it's Roy Nelson. People know Roy Nelson fighting another dude who's, you know, a legend of the sport. So, you know, that's that's a certain value for the UFC. Doesn't mean they're necessarily going to give him Cain Velasquez next, uh, which it seems like Roy Nelson knows. Uh, and so it's like. If you're Roy Nelson, are you content with this? Like, hey, I'm the dude who beats up the dudes who aren't quite good enough to be the dudes who beat me up. Like, I'm the, I'm that guy who, who helps people find out where they stand and, you know, if they're going to bump their heads on the ceiling or not. I mean, it's fine for us to say that they, that's, that's a fine place to be. I mean, if, if that was the, the bullet point from your career, though, uh, as a fighter, I don't know how you could be happy with that. Yeah, and Roy Nelson is 37 years old. Uh, he's going to turn 38 in June. So it's not like he's going to soldier on in this thing, you would think, for uh, years and years longer. Uh, but, I mean, and, and I think you're right. It's not like he's going to be the champ or maybe even fight for the champ championship at this point. Uh, but but he does continue to add value to the heavyweight division as, I think, the dude who's sort of like the consummate consummate uh fight pass main event guy like you can toss him on there it's it's gonna if you just keep retweeting everyone's positive comments about the service it's gonna seem like something everyone should order uh you're gonna have <laughs> you really hung up on that aren't you're you gonna have roy nelson out there uh, uh as a guy that everybody knows fighting in the main event uh but at the same time i think that you have to say that it, it's a, it's a certain kind of commentary 
uh, on this, this event and like the, uh, the new style of UFC programming calendar that you had two guys, both of them coming off losses. And in Roy Nelson's case, coming off back to back losses, uh, kind of propped up as a main event of a Friday afternoon show. And that Roy Nelson gets his first win in, uh, about a year. And, and kind of the only thing that we can say about it is that it like reaffirmed his position as, as a gatekeeper. Like to me, that, that is, is a commentary on, uh, you know, how many, how many damn fight cards we have now. Cause, you know, a, a year or two ago, this is like a, a curtain jerker on a pay per view or, uh, you know, a co main event on a, on a, Fox Sports One card. Yeah, but I also think that we're getting into this era with MMA where there, because there have been dudes who are now have been around long enough to have been like at their prime in in another era that we consider like real MMA, and that you know it wasn't a headbutts and like limitless rounds, untimed rounds, no weight classes kind of era. Like you can go back and look at. Noguera in, you know, the pride days, like in the, the early aughts kind of thing and be like, okay, yeah, that's still basically MMA. I mean, people have gotten a little better in there, but now, you know, like you have guys who are occupying a different position in the sport and sticking around in it longer. Uh, and so what do you do with those guys? I mean, the things that you can do, it seems, are like throw them in there against a young guy who's going to eat them up. And then that guy kind of gets a boost off of it, which, you know, you could argue they did with Cain Velasquez when he knocked out Noguera. Uh, or throw them in there together, man, and see, like, you know, whoever is left standing still has a future. Uh, and that seemed like what this fight was. It was the, let's, let's see who still has something in there. Uh, and Roy Nelson does, and Noguera doesn't. And I guess that it leads as, as well as anything into that question of, is that pretty much it for Noguera? Because already his management's talking about how he'd like one more shot with Frank Mir, and God, I have no desire to right. see that. Yeah. I mean, I wish there was like a Kickstarter fund that we could all pay into to keep him from fighting again. I would contribute to that. Uh, yeah, and I think that, that that's a valid point. Uh, and let's be clear, I don't have a problem with, with Roy Nelson and, and Antonio Rodrigo Noguera being a fight. Like you said, before, you know, coming into it, nobody, Nobody was outraged about the mismatch. Uh, I think it's a fine pairing and a good, and a good fight, but a main event? Nah, not so much. And I think you come out of it in terms of, of, uh, Roderick Nog. Like you said, pretty much unilaterally, everyone's saying, ah, we don't, we don't really want to see this guy fight anymore. And, uh, that's a, a backhanded compliment, if anything, but, but does serve to remind us that he's one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. And, uh, if there were a, 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 a mixed martial arts hall of fame that, that, you know, incorporated what guys did in pride and in the UFC, uh, he'd certainly be a first ballot hall of famer if such yeah. a thing existed. Uh, it just seems like at this point, like, man, let's get to that. Let's get to that stage. Let's skip over this <laughs> seeing you get terribly knocked out. We'll skip straight to the you wearing the yellow jacket with the NFL shield on it, crying at the podium about yeah. how much you enjoyed fighting Fedor or giving, something. Giving your speech, trying to keep your, your wife away from your girlfriend in the audience. Uh, just that kind of classic NFL Hall of Famer kind of shit. That'd be awesome. But, I mean, again, it seems like not going to be that easy the same way it's not easy for most of those guys because they especially a dude like nog where you look at his record and he did that thing for so long of winning one losing one winning one losing one now he's lost two in a row uh but history has taught him like hey man you always come back you always bounce right on back like it's got to be tough for like the first time you lose two in a row to be like okay this is the time when it's all going to shit and it's not going to get better uh, you know, plus there's just the money angle. I mean, especially for those dudes who came up uh, in Pride and some of those early days, it's not like they all have a ton of money to fall back on. You know, he is in his late 30s. You know, he presumably will be alive for a little while longer. Gotta gotta save up some money. Gotta put some something in that nest egg. I'm sure it's very tempting for him to take another fight. I mean, I guess the the question is, is this where we want the UFC to to pull one of its heavy-handed moves that we actually like and try to force him into retirement one way or another. That does always feel a little bit awkward, although with uh, with no gear. I mean, I guess you always hope that the guy has a support system around him that people are going to come to him and be like, look, man, no more. But, you know, if his management is already out there already the day talking. after the fight <laughs> talking about how they want to fight Frank Mir again, I mean, I guess uh, it is a, a situation where I wouldn't argue with it if – Somebody higher up in the organization decided to say, 
you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, I guess it's the question of what would, what would his response be? You know, because there's a lot of guys out there who have decided like, well, hell man, check Congo's over in Bellator. Go fight him. Yeah. You could be Bellator heavyweight champ for all you know. <laughs> don't say that no, stuff to right. him. Don't, don't, don't do put, that. Don't That's... put that idea in his head. I got carried away for a second. <laughs> all right. Well, let's do Ben. Let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we will move on to round number two. Uh, what's your, are you fucking kidding me for this week, Ben? Well, Chad, uh, you might have noticed this. I'm going to say you probably didn't because you're not going to sit around on Friday afternoon and watch the post-fight press conference of uh, <laughs> UFC Fight Night 39 on Fight Pass. Uh, but at the press conference, um, and for one thing, you have UFC Executive Vice President and Managing Director of Europe, Middle East, and Africa, Gary Cook. Uh, you know, just a really succinct job title. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Love to see his LinkedIn page. Uh, with all that on there. And he is asked at the press conference, really kind of a just simple question, not a whole lot of meat to it. Do you think in the future we'll see more like fight night type events or pay-per-views? Uh, then he launches into a, an answer where he calls that question disrespectful to the fighters because it suggests that one event is better than another. Uh, and it, it's, it's disrespectful to the fighters that have put in all this hard work. Are you fucking kidding me, UFC Executive Vice President, Managing Director of Europe, Middle East, and Africa, Gary Cook? You damn well know that some events are superior to others. For instance, why do you think that UFC Executive Vice President, Managing Director of Europe, Middle East, and Africa, Gary Cook, is even at the podium answering questions at this press conference and not UFC President Dana White, who handles the real shit? Everyone can look at that alone, not to mention the Friday afternoon time slot, uh, the fact that it's streaming over the internet and not on the TV for $55. We can all tell that you, the UFC, think that some events are superior to others. If you get overly defensive about it, especially when the question wasn't even asking that, it just makes us all think that here's a sensitive spot that we should all poke at. Fucking kidding me, Gary Cook? Fucking kidding me. UFC Executive Vice President, Managing Director of Europe, Middle East, and Africa. You doth protest too much, Gary Cook. Ben, I don't know if you saw this week, but right in the middle of his debate about the so-called brawl with Vanderlei Silva, uh, Chael Sonnen went on Twitter and called out Rich Franklin. Huh. Uh, Semi-retired juice bar operator. Juice baron, right? And frequent contributor to Master Tweet Theater, Rich Franklin. Uh, Do you sure he wasn't trying to call out Randy Couture? <laughs> maybe he called confused. out Randy Couture and then Rich Franklin retweeted. Are you fucking kidding me, <laughs> Chael Sonnen? So we've officially reached the point where Chael Sonnen is just at home on the computer calling out guys he knows he can beat. Can you imagine the glee on Chael Sonnen's face when he's at home thumbing through Wikipedia and he comes up across Rich Franklin. I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense. They're both about the same age. They've both lost twice to Anderson Silva. Uh, Rich Franklin, a former champion. You could probably still put his name on a poster. But are you fucking kidding me? That's like Christmas and Chael Sonnen's birthday all rolled into one. <laughs> fucking kidding me. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, get that USA chant ready. USA, USA. That's enough. Okay. Because Tim Kennedy and Michael Bisping are going to go at it in the main event of the Tough Nations finale, which I'm sure you're very excited about. Uh, apparently, Canada and Australia competed on some sort of reality-based television show. Uh, what? Really? And uh, the reward at the end of it will be that... An American dude and a British dude will fight each other on the main event, and plus there'll be some other stuff. But come on, Bisping and Kennedy, that's what we're all showing up for here. 
Uh, first of all, thoughts on this matchup and on the general uh, Michael Bisping Chow line that seems to have be going on in the middleweight division where everybody wants a shot at this guy. Well, it's interesting to note that I would say after this weekend, Michael Bisping may have conceded the title of most called out UFC fighter to Conor McGregor. That's right. Who got called out by every single person on the fight pass card, right? <laughs> I'm led to believe. More or less true, yeah. Uh, I feel like, you know, this is a pretty good fight. And, and for Michael Bisping coming back after this long, layoff because uh, uh, the MMA gods finally uh, uh, noticed that he had just poked Alan Belcher in the eye and served up an eye injury for himself. Uh, But uh, uh, I feel like we missed out on some uh, probably some like sponsorship synergy for this fight, you know, that could be like an Assassin's Creed tie in here or something (laughs) or like uh, that new AMC show about uh, the Revolutionary War, like. Tim, yeah, there you go. Tim Kennedy against Michael Bisping, brought yeah. to you by AMC's turn. <laughs> there you go. Or, you know, we've got the World Cup coming up. You know, there's 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 tons of opportunities, really some, some missed opportunities there. But, I mean, I think as far as uh, when you look at where Michael Bisping is and where Tim Kennedy is, what do you see this as a fight for exactly? Because, I mean, I could see Michael Bisping seems like he's been right up to that that cusp so many times of like, hey, win the next one and you get a title shot, and he always loses those. And Tim Kennedy hasn't really been there in the UFC yet since he you know, just got still kind of new since being imported from Strikeforce. It seems like one of those fights that could be really big for Tim Kennedy or could keep Michael Bisping in kind of the same holding pattern. Yeah, the stakes seem considerably higher to me for, for Tim Kennedy. Uh, you know, if he comes out and beats Michael Bisping, Clearly, that kind of launches him into a a different category than he's been regarded as in the UFC thus far. Uh, It would be far and away the biggest win of his career. And, you know, if he's able to win this one, then I think you start to look back and say, well, you know, the guy's only real big time career losses are to Luke Rockhold and Jacare Souza. Obviously, he lost one to... uh, uh, Mayhem Miller back in 2007, but you know, if you beat Michael Bisping and you're Tim Kennedy, uh, all of a sudden that record starts to look pretty good. Whereas I think if you're Michael Bisping, this is just sort of a fight where, uh, you've been out for a while, you were injured, you come back. Uh, I, I think you have the opportunity to not only reestablish yourself in the middleweight division, but also to kind of reinforce what you said at the top of the round. And that's how uh, it's kind of a be careful what you wish for situation. A lot of the times when people start calling out Michael Bisping, because, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, they make disparaging comments about his punching power and his ability and call him overrated. And then they get in there and he kind of wears them out. So uh, uh, this, I think, is a chance for Michael Bisping to sort of uh, reinforce that idea that he's a guy that, that as Conor McGregor tweeted over the weekend, everybody wants it until they get it. <laughs> Which is pretty much like the best possible response to everybody calling you out, isn't it? No, Conor McGregor's got some moves, man. You got to give him that. Yeah. Although I would think that when it comes to just like the constant call outs, the UFC, especially if there are as pushing as hard for Conor McGregor as all the other fighters seem to think they are when accusing the UFC of protecting this little leprechaun. Seems like, wouldn't you, if you're the UFC, tell all these other guys like, hey man, spread out, spread out the call outs a little bit, spread them around. Otherwise it really just makes it seem like that's the only dude anybody cares to watch fight in that division. Let's yeah. That seems like you could have Burt Watson go over that with him. Where he's like, <laughs> all right, we're going to come pick you up at four fifteen. get in the van. We'll take you to the event. Don't call out Connor McGregor. Be there on time, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Do you have your paperwork for your medicals? Don't call out Connor McGregor. You know, this reminds me of one of the things that Tim Kennedy brought up uh, when we were in Albuquerque, uh, doing the stuff on Jackson's and talking to him, and we're asking you know people about the various things that they find annoying in the gym or with their training partners. And Tim Kennedy, not surprisingly, uh, said that his biggest pet peeve was punctuality and fighters' inability to stick to it. Wow! If you if that is your pet peeve, you are in the wrong industry, right. my friend. Well, and one my, of the things the, he, the former uh, Army Ranger right. Tim Kennedy, you are in the wrong industry. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, you tell Tim Kennedy to be somewhere at four o'clock, and he, you know, if he's not there by by three fifty, he considers himself late, uh, and also considers you late if you're not there by three fifty. But it's one of those things where I can see how it must drive him crazy because he was saying how you know. Burt Watson will come to them and say, like, all right, I need you down here in the lobby at, like, 9.15. And he'd be like, 
Bert, what time, what time is the van leaving? And he said, well, it's like 1030. And he's like, okay, then I will see you down here at 1020. Like, you don't need to tell me 915 just so that, like, when I'm going to go ahead and be late, I'll still be on time. Like, I'm not Nate Diaz. You don't need to pull that stuff with me. You can just actually treat me like an adult and tell me when to leave. Uh, but then that brings us to another issue with Tim Kennedy, which is, does Tim Kennedy need to win this fight to uh, stay on good terms with the UFC? Seemed like he got off to a rocky start with the whole complaining about pay stuff before his fight with Hodger Gracie. He, then he goes out there, you know, knocks out Rafael Natal at the, for, in a fight for the troops. Then he's everybody's hero. Now he gets a, a fight with one of the... the most easily promotable dudes uh, who doesn't have a belt in the middleweight division. Uh, is this one of those where, all right, Tim Kennedy, the clock is ticking, man. Show us what you got. I hope not. And I hope that the UFC knows that it is probably better off having Tim Kennedy around, uh, win, lose, or draw in this fight, uh, than cutting him loose. I mean, well, I wouldn't think they'd cut him, but I mean, if you're going to make a run at the title or something, if you're Tim Kennedy, it's kind of got to be now, right? Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit. He's, he's not a guy who, who is, is a spring chicken, you know, uh, he's 34, certainly been around the game a while and, and got into things a few years after maybe some of the other guys did. Uh, but I mean, I think you're, uh, the fact probably is that Tim Kennedy, an outspoken guy and a guy who's not afraid to speak his mind and say what he really thinks, is never really going to jive 100% with uh, what the UFC wants or really, you know, maybe what any sort of large corporate sporting entity would want. It just doesn't seem like he's ever going to be the kind of guy that gives you a palatable vanilla soundbite and then, you know, goes on his way. He's going to, uh, I think to his credit, put some thought into the stuff that you ask him and try to give you a real answer that's that's probably going to put him at odds with his promoter sometime but I, at, at sometimes but i think it's going to make him a popular guy in the industry so i mean even if he loses this fight to michael bisping uh he's still going to be a guy in the middleweight division that i think a lot of people watch and is and will be uh a, you know continue to be a mid-level guy who's going to give almost anybody a pretty tough fight yeah I, and i think so and i th but i think that you can get to a point in the ufc where that becomes a problem for you. Yeah, well, it depends on how much money you're making. A lot of the time, it, it, it seems does. like. And he just renegotiated a contract, so you know, and claims that uh, he did not go in there with a bunch of financial demands, but uh, but really went in there to try and make the case for a fight with a guy like Bisping. You could understand why uh, people want that. Why people keep. But I, I mean, I think it's a weird thing, and I have uh, I wrote something today that that'll be coming out soon about why that seems to keep happening. Where. People want this fight with Michael Bisping and, and why it seems like he is that guy because one, everybody knows him, uh, you know, you, and you can, you can talk that guy into accepting a challenge. Like you, even if it's not a great fight for Michael Bisping, you can kind of get him into it because he just can't help himself. But like you said, I mean, I think that people, they get this in their heads, maybe because everybody calls out Michael Bisping or because like when he wins, he doesn't just go out there and obliterate people. Um, so they think that he's not as good as he is, but he is a pretty good fighter. He is a pretty good fighter. I did see uh, some guys going back and forth on Twitter today. I don't know if you got the chance to see it before you left about his record saying that Michael Bisping actually doesn't have any wins over anybody who is right now an active fighter on the UFC roster. Uh, is that true? And you start to look at his record and, and you know, he just beat Alan Belcher in, in uh, last April. Obviously, Belcher is out uh, tending to some injury stuff. Uh, but then his other wins are Brian Stan, retired, Jason Miller, retired-ish, uh, Jorge Rivera, retired, Akiyama, retired, Dan Miller, not in the UFC anymore, Dennis Kang, I think retired, right? Or at least not in the UFC anymore, Chris Lieben, retired, and then you got Jason Day and, and uh, the Chainsaw, Charles McCarthy, retired, uh, and then Matt Hamill, Elvis Sinisek, Eric Schaefer, and that big Ultimate Fighter Season 3 win over Josh Haynes. He's currently holding it down on the Vegas Strip at that episode of Cops I, I saw can be believed. Is that true? Yeah. Is he a police officer? Yeah. Or he, which which end? I guess I should ask which end of the cops episode was he on? No, he 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 was uh, the man in uniform uh, upholding law and order. Uh, but you know, I think that that is kind but, of misleading. No, I agree with you. I believe I, the the uh, this is to answer your question. The perception exists that Michael Bisping is overrated, but like I said before, the guys who think that seem to get beat an awful lot of the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, and some of that like. Dan Miller, guys like Dan Miller and Alan Belcher might not be exactly around right now, but it's not like they got drummed out of the sport or anything. Like those, 
those dudes are dealing with stuff, right? Like, I mean, that's that seems. I mean, some of those guys you can you can point to it and be like, okay, yeah, fine. But I mean, it's not like a, there's a whole lot of of just outright losers in that list who couldn't hack it and so they quit. I mean, Brian Stan could have stuck around in this sport if he wanted to, uh, just decided to retire. But okay, fine. I, I mean, you can make that argument, I guess, if you want to. But then. I'm, do the other side. Look at who he's been beaten by. Uh, you know, he got he got knocked out by Vitor Belfort, a TRT-tastic Vitor Belfort down there in Brazil. Uh, especially one of those things, I think, that uh, during Vitor Belfort's tumultuous year that people are going to take a different look at now. Uh, you know, lost a really close decision to uh, to Chael Sonnen and looked pretty good in that one. I mean, he was, he was getting takedowns on Chael Sonnen in that uh, he lost a, a really close decision to Vanderlei Silva um, that, you know, could have arguably gone the other way. He got knocked out by Dan Henderson back when, you know, Hendo's kind of at, at the height of his powers uh, and uh, lost a really, really close uh, decision to Rashad Evans, who then went on to become the, the light heavyweight champion. So, I mean, y- y- if you want to do it on one side and say, hey, you know, he hasn't beaten anybody as great, look at who he's lost to. I mean, they're all like guys who either had been champions at some point or on their way to being champions or on the way back down from being champions or on the way to top contender stuff. There's no chumps in that list either. No, I agree with you. And I think that that's why this fight with Tim Kennedy uh, is going to be an interesting one to see if Tim Kennedy can establish himself as a, a more than just a mid-level guy or, or to see if Michael Bisping kind of reaffirms his position uh, as, uh, I guess, a guy who who is always – kind of floating around the outskirts of the of the title scene. You'd think if Bisman comes out and, and makes it look easy, then he's he's uh you know reinforce the idea that that he's a main event top level guy. Uh if he struggles with Tim Kennedy, maybe it says more good things about about Tim Kennedy uh than we thought coming in. Uh let's do you wanted to do tips for the well rounded fight fan this week. So uh let's 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 do that. Uh what is your Ben tip? For the well-rounded fight fan. Well, Chad, it just so happens uh, that I have a work of short fiction uh, that is published and out available for purchase right now from uh, noted literary journal Glimmer Train. Uh, issue 90 of Glimmer Train contains a story about MMA fighters, no less, uh, from yours truly. Uh, and I realize maybe a lot of the, the listeners out there aren't big into the, the literary journal scene, but, uh, this could be their chance to get into it. Yeah, that's exactly get their feet wet. Get in on the ground exactly floor. That's what I'm saying. You can go to glimmertrain.com. You can order yourself up uh, a, a copy of issue 90. Uh, maybe if you happen to know where there are any fine bookstores still in existence, you can usually find Glimmer Train among the, the literary journals there. Or I've got a uh, a box of like ten free copies sitting in my office right now. So make me an offer. Uh, anyway, uh, you shouldn't have said that they were free. You should have just said you had copies. Well, they were free to me. Well, that's what, just, that's the thing. You don't need to tell people that. Be like, you bought them. If you want to send me, I don't know, six between six and ten dollars, we can talk about oh, it. Please, please. It'll take. It's going to take a little more than that. <laughs> these are these are autographed. I don't care if you want it oh, autographed or not. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, but I'll put anybody's autograph in there. So Glimmer Train. Daryl Strawberry. Fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, glimmertrain.com. Uh, you know, support the arts or some shit, man. Uh, instead of buying all your DVDs and giant foam fingers and whatever you do to support your, your sports interests, you know, maybe buy a literary journal, read a short story about MMA fighters and, uh, show these people that, uh, people actually do read fiction every once in a while. Just it's worth it. Yeah. Having, I was, I've been there for the, uh, the the maturation process of this story and other stories uh and and uh this one's good this you it's worth the money it's worth the six bucks <laughs> it's gonna cost more than six bucks how much is it i think to buy the copy from glimmer train it's like 20 bucks wow okay yeah. well, well it's like still a, worth it still a worth a ton it. of stories in there it's like a big ass book of stories uh, you know, I was going to do a tip for the well-rounded fight fan. You sprung this on me late. I didn't, I didn't have one that I felt a hundred percent about. Uh, we're running short on time. Uh, do you think I should just do it or skip it or do it? All right. Uh, well you, you, I don't know if you finished this book, but the last I heard you were mired deep in the middle of it. It's long. Uh, but today the, uh, the goldfinch by Donna Tart won the Pulitzer prize for fiction. Uh, Ben is right. It is very long. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. 
you have had some mixed feelings about it, so I guess I would invite the uh, the well-rounded fight fans out there to uh, to take a look. I would advise get that shit on your Kindle so you don't have to carry around a cinder block everywhere you go. That might have been one of the mistakes I made. Uh, but uh, maybe we can invite the uh, CME audience to to read that and send us their thoughts. They can decide our our argument that we, that we're having about. <laughs> yeah, it's eight months from now, and they finally finish reading it. I look forward to hearing all the responses. We'll see if the, the people out there side with Ben Folks and don't like the Goldfinch, or if they side with me and the people who give out the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> uh, well, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, Travis Brown, and Fabrizio Verdum, the Go Horse. Gotta love the Go Horse. Are going to do it in the main event of the UFC on Fox this weekend. Uh, We think with a UFC heavyweight title shot on the line. Um, Kind of a a tale of drastically different 2013s for these guys. Travis Brown is kind of the new hotness. He goes 3-0 last year beating Gabriel Gonzaga, Alistair Overeem, and then Josh Barnett. Uh, Fabricio Verdun got himself tangled up in uh, a, a coaching gig on uh, Tough Brazil opposite uh, Roderick Nog, and so he only ended up fighting one time last June. Uh, I don't know where you want to start with this. Who do you, who you got, man? Who do you got here? It's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess if you forced me to choose, I'd take Travis Brown. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, his size and power going to be a little bit difficult for Verdum to deal with. I mean, I think Verdum's a, an awesome fighter. I also think, though, like you said, Travis Brown's coming off a year where he beat some pretty good dudes, uh, was kind of thrown in the fire a little bit, and uh, probably came out stronger for it. Whereas Verdum, you know, he had that kind of an easy fight against Roderick Nog. Uh, before that, just beat the living shit out of Mike Russo. Uh, in a fight where, you know, he looked good, but it was one of those kind of things where you kind of got to go out there and beat the shit out of that guy in order to just maintain your position. Uh, and before that was the one where he actually showed that he can stand there and kickbox with people when he beat up Roy Nelson. So, I mean, I think that, you know, I would not be surprised to see Verdum come away with this one. But if you're going to ask me who is the the streaking heavyweight uh, the guy on a on a beeline toward the title shot between those two, I'd probably have to say is Travis Brown. Yeah, Travis Brown is a guy that I kind of want to know more about now. Uh, not only because he had this 2013 where he beat Gabe Gonzaga, Alistair Overeem, and Josh Barnett, uh, and now he's you know he's 16 one and one. The only loss on his record is that that fight against Bigfoot Silva, uh, where he tore his damn hamstring yeah. trying to throw a spinning back kick or something like that uh right at the beginning of the first round uh and then, then he had the the uh the draw against check congo where congo was was deducted a point for holding on to his shorts but uh go figure he's he's another guy where at this point uh maybe we don't know exactly how good he is uh and he has certainly looked uh amazing in his last three fights he's had those those two uh knockouts of barnett and gonzaga where he used those weird elbows that we still don't know if they're legal or they're what. legal i guess they are I don't, totally think, legal. I don't think anybody knows what that rule says or means, but uh, we're going, we're rolling with it. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, so I want to know more about how good he is in the cage. And after watching his weird post-fight interviews, where he says he's doing it for the for the blue collar workers in the cheap seats and not the fat cats down in the front row, like <laughs> like he's Stone Cold Steve Austin about to crack open a Steve Weiser. Uh, I find Travis Brown to be uh, an intriguing individual at this point. Yeah, do you just imagine all the the wealthy industrialists who are there yeah, all in the, the fat in the fr- cats in chewing the, on their cigars in the front row at a UFC event? Their mustaches, their monocles are falling out in shock when Travis Brown says that. Uh, I say, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know exactly who Travis Brown thinks is out there in, in a any given crowd at the MGM grand garden arena. Uh, but like you said, I mean, I, and I think that it is like an intriguing matchup because for the UFC, either way it comes out, you got it yourself a legit title contender, uh, just, you know, licking his chops for when Cain Velasquez comes back. And might I add, you look at the, the whole TV portion. That's a pretty good fight card on Fox. You got Travis Brown, Fabricio Verdum. You got Misha Tate and Liz Carmouche. Uh, you got Cowboy Cerrone and Edson Barboza in, in what's, 
you know, bound to be a, a lightweight thriller. And, well, and get to the, the actual main event. <laughs> the actual, the Chad Dundas main event. Brad Tavares versus your guy, Yoel Romero. The soldier of God. That's what? Your, that's your guy right there. That's my new guy. Soldierofgod.com. You know he's going to do something weird. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, you know, we just we looked at this card before we started recording this round. Uh, I'm also pleased to see, as part of the uh, preliminary main event, you got Rafael Dos Anjos against uh, Nermi. Yeah, could be Nermi Gomedo. You got Tiago Alves finally coming back and getting his fight on against Seth Pazinski on the, on the, the prelims. Uh you know, uh, Masvidal and Pat Healy. That's a, that's a decent fight. You also got Jordan Mine coming back and doing a little action. So, I mean, if you're if you bought tickets to this one, you chose wisely. At least so far, nothing has you know, injuries have completely derailed the shit. Uh, this seems like a, a pretty good one, top to bottom, especially for what we've seen lately out of the UFC. Uh, so, I mean, to get back to the the Verdum Travis Brown heavyweight main event here, though. Let's say, regardless of, of who it comes out, do you think the the winner of this fight? is a real threat to become the heavyweight champion once Cain Velasquez gets back in there. Uh, I have an easier time thinking that Travis Brown is a bigger threat to Cain Velasquez than than Fabricio Verdum uh, for whatever reason. I don't know that I can even ground that in a, in a lot of logic, but maybe just because uh, Verdum is a guy who's who's been around for so long and uh, didn't really rocket up the heavyweight top ten list until he beat Fedor uh in Strike Force back in 2010. Uh so has always been a guy that that you know I definitely buy into him as a uh as a legit A list top 5 heavyweight but uh uh you know in there against a younger faster arguably better rounded Kane Velasquez. I don't know that, that he would have the answer. Whereas Travis Brown, I, I kind of have a tendency to think about uh, more as an X factor at this point. Like, you know, if he's knocking guys out with weird side elbows, like who knows what he could do against Kane Velasquez, who is a guy who, while uh, very overpowering a lot in his, in his wrestling game and his skill set, uh, you know, we, we've seen, especially with the, you know, most recent Junior Dos Santos fights that like, uh, he, he might let you hang around. Yeah. Uh, uh, for a while and, uh, you know, give you ample opportunity to punch him in his noggin. That's true. Well, you know, I mean, I guess the way I look at it is it depends a lot on uh, what the the time off and the injury stuff has will take away from Cain Velasquez. If he can come back, though, and look the same as he did before, I think he runs over both those guys. Uh, I, I do think wow, that, that Travis... I mean, he's Cain Velasquez. He's pretty Are you sitting good. over there shortchanging Travis Brown as just a striker and nothing else? Because <laughs> he will say some shit about that in his Where post-fight. Where did he get that? Where did he get that from? That's the thing. That's why I said before I want to I want to know more about Travis Brown because it seems to me like Travis Brown is 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 growing his beard out and training hard down there at Albuquerque and kind of like imagining what we're all saying about him. Yeah, you know, I think he is kind of doing that because I don't know if you remember he kind of made some headlines for his comments on sponsors and everything uh, a few months ago where he was saying just something along the lines of like, oh, these guys think that, you know, you just have to be given sponsorship money and you have to go out there and earn that stuff. And I'm not complaining about my sponsors. And it seemed like maybe uh, he was unhappy with how people took that because when I was down there in Albuquerque and we were doing interviews with him, uh, he really managed to steer the conversation that direction, uh, even without me trying to ask about it. He wanted to talk about it and, and try and clarify um, some of those remarks. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that obviously he's a tough guy. One of the things, though, that uh, Fabrizio Verdum said about when I asked him about that, hey, you see these guys who are pretty good grapplers. They end up doing the thing where they're trying to take him down against the fence and then they just get the shit elbowed out of their skull and it's lights out before they know it. Like one of those situations happened to both Gonzaga and Barnett where, you know, he's throwing these elbows that we've seen guys throw elbows from that position. It seems like a thing like, okay, you're just going to do this until the guy takes you down or gives up on the takedown. And it's one of those situations that goes from pretty pedestrian to, oh shit, the fight's over or really quickly. And Verdum's response, which I couldn't really disagree with, was that it, it was a situation where both those guys, Gonzaga and Barnett, kind of just freaked out and went for the takedown immediately without a whole lot of setup, just kind of charging in there, thinking that they're going to get to that guy to the ground a lot easier than they did, and then they got knocked out. I mean, it happened to Gonzaga in just a little over uh, a minute into the first round. It happened to Barnett, you know, at basically a minute. 
I can kind of see his point there that hey, maybe if you don't freak out and just figure you got to get that guy down to the ground at all costs, you got a better chance. Yeah, that's a good point, and and you know I think that uh, like you said at the top, this is this is a tough a tough fight to call, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Fabricio Verdum emerges with the victory. Um, well, Ben, let's do uh, just saying stuff for this week, and then we will uh, we'll get out of here. Uh, you know, before we wrap up, though, we got to mention the next week is is episode one hundred, big one hundred. It's uh, we got tons of stuff planned. It's really super Am- secret, exciting, amazing, stuff. super. Just wait till you see the shit that we do. You will not fucking believe you it. You will not believe it. It's going to be crazy. Uh, so definitely tune in for that next week, Ben. What what is your? Are you? Or I guess we're doing just saying. Stuff. I haven't I haven't known what we're doing this whole goddamn show. No, that's that's new. What's your just saying stuff? Well. You alluded earlier to uh, the Chael Sonnen, Vanderlei Silva brawl on the set of Tough Brazil 3. I watched the GIF. By now, everybody has seen either the GIF or the actual oh, video. Oh, you just said GIF. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now so, who's discombobulated? And there is you know, a lot of talk out there about whether it was staged. And I admit when I heard that Vanderlei Silva and Chael Sonnen brawled on the set of... Uh, the Ultimate Fighter Brazil, I thought, that seems just a little too good to be true from the UFC's perspective. Then I, I watched it, and you know, I'm just saying, if you think you're going to get into a staged brawl uh, with a dude on the set of a reality television show, you probably don't wear flip-flops to work that day. Especially if you know your response in this brawl is going to be to immediately shoot for a takedown. I'm just saying. Yeah, just saying. If I were Vanderlei and I was going to get involved in a scripted uh, melee with Chael Sonnen, I would try to work him, work it out with him earlier to be like, "Hey, man, when we get into our fake scuffle, like maybe don't just take me down immediately, <laughs> really easily, really, really easily, while you're wearing your flip flops and your jeans, because <laughs> that kind of makes me look like I don't have a chance yeah. when we get together and fight for real. It's not really selling the fight that way. So if it was scripted, man, the fact that or unscripted, I guess you could say. If it was if it was the real deal, I kind of saw all I needed to see right there with <laughs> Chael Sonnen just taking Vanderlei Silva down like a scarecrow uh, when he's wearing his flip-flops and his jeans. Anyway, uh, this week, Ben, I, I'm just saying sometimes it seems to me like our friend Nick Diaz is the sanest person in the MMA fight game. I don't know if you saw his most recent comments that Ariel Helwani called him up this week to see if he was thinking about a comeback to the UFC. And Diaz uh, said that he was not even considering uh, fighting any of the guys that the UFC wanted him to fight for less than a half a million dollars. I just wanted to read some of his comments. I'm retired, completely retired. Unless the UFC wants to renegotiate for something I'm happy with, or I'm going to be fighting for a world title, which is obviously going to be for something that I'm happy with because I'll make a ton of money. The UFC wants me to fight. The people want me to fight. I don't want me to fight. So we're going to need, if we're going to need me to fight, we're going to have to work out the right deal. If You're we're going to need God me to fight. damn right you are, Nick Diaz. More power to you, brother. If you don't want to get out there and do it, man, they better pay you a lot of money. You know who made half a million dollars to show up and fight in the UFC? Who's that? James Side Check Kick Tony. Well, there you go. Dark Gable himself. Right there. That makes Nick Diaz uh, seem like he's worth a couple million at least. You want to come see me? Come see me. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week uh, with a lot to talk about. For episode, episode 100, motherfucker! For episode 100, uh, you're not going to want to miss that. We've got some top secret shit planned. If you miss that, you may kill yourself. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. Man, James Tony made a half a million dollars. Can you still believe that shit? That's crazy. I didn't even and know didn't that. didn't train a goddamn day for that fight from no, the look he, of it. No, he went at that Vladimir Machuchenko style, for sure. Man. Now that's, see, that, that's a fight where I could believe James Tony was like, oh, that's tomorrow? Oh, I better get some fights. I better get some shorts. What do these guys wear in there anyway? Do they do the thing where they put ropes on our hands and we got to dip them in broken glass or what? I saw that in a documentary once. <laughs>